0: Hey everyone, this is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you, and the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, we are in that holiday
1: stretch. Thanksgiving has past us. The rest of the holidays are coming up. Christmas, New Year's. And, you know, one of the exciting things that we have going on is the World
0: Cup. I don't know if you're a big watcher. I'm like a diehard World Cup viewer. I'm a big World Cup fan. It's odd to have it in the... Winter. I always associate it with the summer. Right. But you can't play in Qatar in the summer, so.
1: I've chatted with a few people. So, well, one, it's a really actually fantastic World Cup. It's been super competitive, a lot of upsets. You know, obviously you see a lot of star players. France has been playing well. Spain's been playing well. U.S. is still in the mix. But it is interesting because it's the first time it's ever been during this, like, November through December And I think we were all like annoyed with it at first, but it actually hasn't been too bad. Like I feel like, depending on the work that you do, but it's been kind of nice to be around the holidays and be able to watch the World Cup. And I've actually been enjoying it. I I would prefer summer, but I don't mind this winter season World Cup.
0: It does sort of compress things with NBA and NFL and college basketball. But it's great because people have, you know, they're spending more time with family. There's technically, there's more days off work in the holiday season. So, you know, I haven't really decided, but I think I'm a purist. I prefer summer, but it's been great. I agree with you. And, you know, it's good to be back. Thanks, everyone, for uh, bearing with us last week. And I think we have a great show for you today. Well, let's kick it
1: off. We've got some interesting, an interesting story that's both on the entertainment and legal side regarding a lawsuit with Drake and 21 Savage by Conde Nass. What, Paul, did Drake do to tick off the folks at Vogue and their their mother company.
0: The whole story, you wonder, like I'm scratching my head as to why Drake and Twenty One Savage would have done this because they they did a pretty aggressive move. But basically, they're promoting her loss the, their most their latest album, and you know it's released on both Drake and Twenty One Savage's label. And part of their promotion is they took these media outlets, one of which was Vogue. So basically, they made a fake Vogue magazine cover. And made it look like their album cover. And then they not only did that, they distributed it like physical copies of this fake magazine. They had it all over their Instagram. Right. And Drake even posted on his Instagram saying, you know, thank you for all the love and support. Tagged Anna Winter, who's the editor of Vogue. So he made the whole thing look super authentic. Like Vogue was actually going to do an issue based on this album. And he also did a fake, Howard Stern clip and an NPR tiny desk clip. And they did all these things and they had a media agency, I guess, that was coordinating all the marketing, but they didn't have the rights to use Vogue's trademark or to use Anna Winters name, image and likeness. So they got a legal letter and then an injunction. So Condé Nast, which is actually Advanced Magazine Publishers, sued Drake 21 Savage and they got a judgment, a temporary restraining order right away. And the judge, Jed Rakoff, who's a New York federal judge, basically said, hey, this is trademark infringement. There's a very strong likelihood that they'll succeed at trial. So you need to stop doing this now and take it all down. Which is interesting because now these magazines, these fake magazines have kind of become (laughs) collector's items. Yeah, I mean, like what? I mean, obviously from a legal
1: standpoint, why would anyone at a label, why wasn't that clear to be like, guys, this is probably too big of a risk. Like, you know, NPR responded differently. NPR responded with... Hey, this is not our Tiny Desk series, but we're open to the idea of having Drake on for a Tiny Desk series. And for those who haven't watched Tiny Desk series, it's a, it's actually a fantastic like live acoustic type show at the NPR. Oh, it would be good. Yeah, if be Drake great. did it. It would be good. And like I think it's a great invite and, I, and it's a great response from them like we've had some amazing people on on Tiny Desk series that we've seen and and as fans, then obviously Vogue responded on the opposite end of that with, hey, like, this is not okay. It doesn't make sense to me who would approve, like, hey, let's make physical copies of a magazine that has existed for a long time is quite powerful. And, you know, especially part of, like, American culture and take that
0: risk, you know, you're dealing with a lawsuit. Like, this seems like unnecessary expenses. They're actually asking for triple damages equal to the, three times the profits from the sale of the album that's what they're asking for <laughs> so that's like not i wouldn't want to be on that side of the legal like the receiving side of that legal letter and listen hindsight's 2020 but the only thing i can think of is that they thought that vogue would be sort of cool with it or maybe they didn't have someone doing clearances and they thought well maybe this is a fair use cuz we're we're like transforming it but it fair use doesn't apply to trademark at all. What Vogue is saying is like, you're creating all this confusion. You're making it look like we authorize this. We, as you said, we have an incredibly strong trademark. We've had this magazine for 130 years and you can't use our editor-in-chief's name and just act like she's endorsing this stuff. And they had to take it all down, but sort of the damage is done. They lost their injunction. And, you know, we'll see. But to your point, I wouldn't advise anyone do this in the future. I'd say... If you want to do it, it does sound like a cool idea, but you need to get permission. Permission, yeah. Before you do it. All right, you need a trademark license. You probably need to run everything by them for approval. They may ask for a license fee. I'm not sure they'd be willing to do a special edition issue of the magazine for this, but I think it's a, you know, it's a creative idea. It's just the kind of thing where you need permission in order to do something like this. In times where like digital media is suffering, ads are down, you know, magazine
1: sales are suffering, it'd probably be an opportunity to go to Condé Nast and go to Vogue, go to the editor and be like, hey, let's work on something together or even a spread of some sort um, versus just kind of going rogue um, and, you know, risking, hey, we might get some good coverage here. Uh,
0: but that's some costly, costly marketing. I mean, we'll see what the damages end up being, but you're right. I mean, as if you're a Vogue or advanced magazine publishers, which is Condé Nast, the parent entity, Magazines are a tough business to be in right now, and they need to increase their digital presence. But people aren't buying magazines the way they were 30 years ago and ad revenue is down. So maybe there could have been a cool opportunity to leverage this where they both benefit. But you certainly can't have someone go rogue and claim that they have the right to use your trademark without your permission because the other thing about trademarks is if you don't enforce them aggressively then they get weak over time it dilutes your mark so right. vogue had to come out and take a stand on this yeah because otherwise if they let it go some other people are going to be like oh we can do similar
1: things now and and start you know experimenting with similar strategies that drake did drake's
0: got resources it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. he's a starving artist it's never you know, where this is not going to be seen by anyone like this has an actual risk of confusing consumers. And he has the resources to get the clearance if he wants to. So or if if there's no price that Vogue would agree to, then he would just have to do a different, you know, magazine choice or a different, you know, promotional tactic. Yeah. Also, like, I feel like the last person you want to take off is Anna Wintour. And he's already made a comment about not going to the Met ball because he doesn't get a plus one <laughs> or Met Gala. <laughs> Uh, I haven't listened to the album. I'm actually a Drake fan. I even, didn't even know the album had
1: come out. And I think part of that is because no one's talking about how good the album is. Usually is where I then jump in as a bandwagon person. So right. um, there's a buzz.
0: It hasn't unseated Taylor Swift. Yeah, no,
1: who's just smashing it right now. Uh, all right, well, let's take a break and then let's get back and talk about Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino. But they're not part of the same story. Right, paul so we're back harvey weinstein continues to be in the press with recently the release of she said which is the movie that's based on the new york times reporter investigative journalist who broke the harvey weinstein sexual assault case about i think it was like five years ago now but the movie yeah started the whole me too started the whole me too movement the movie came out. It, you know, everyone from Ashley Judd to Carrie Mulligan's in it. Good reviews on on Rotten Tomatoes. In theaters currently. You know, during this Thanksgiving to uh, going up to Christmas time, I honestly didn't even know that it had come out until we decided to talk about it. I thought it was going to be a streaming movie, and I was like, "Oh, I'll watch it on stream." But it's actually in theaters right now, and it won't be coming out to streaming for another month or so.
0: Right. Yeah. So actually, I did know there was a decent marketing push. It's a universal release. Universal is a major studio owned by Comcast. And so it will eventually end up on Peacock. But they did the the circuit, right? So there was like the weekend of release. They were on the morning talk shows talking about the movie. And it's happened to coincide with Harvey Weinstein being in trial in Los Angeles for sexual assault and rape. And actually, Governor Newsom's wife, Governor of California's yeah. wife, testified that Harvey Weinstein raped her maybe 20 years ago. And so Harvey Weinstein, major story. It did, like we said, spearhead the Me Too movement and exposed a lot of things, a lot of trauma and a lot of unacceptable behavior from people in power in Hollywood. And it was a huge story, but for whatever reason, no one is seeing this movie. It only made 4.2 million in box office worldwide. And that includes 3.2 million in the US and Canada. And for a major studio wide release to only make that it's like pretty astounding yeah it's
1: interesting it's hard to tell because we you know before we start recording we talked about spotlight and how spotlight made incredible cast did well at the oscars and did really well at the box office The one best picture one best picture and it made a hundred million in box it's interesting because like i'm sure they've done a marketing push i'm pretty like i feel like i'm generally pretty on point when what's coming out because especially during like oscar season and stuff i want to see all the films and it just wasn't on my radar until this week and then immediately my head went i thought it was a netflix it was going to be on netflix and i was like oh i'll watch it tonight but I, I don't know if this is just like a we're going through a weird phase right now with box office and movies and it's wintertime or it's approaching wintertime and for people to really go to the theaters again it's more of like a black panther and is this a movie that they would rather stream Unclear.
0: And it might be, so there might be some fatigue over just like hearing about Harvey Weinstein, right? Like that, right. To me, to only make 4 million, that's probably a part of it, but I can't say for sure. But generally speaking, I mean, box office is like you said, I mean, the, the films that do really well at box are tentpole films with, you know, large action budgets. And, you know, so Top Gun Maverick, the Marvel franchises, but even Terrifier 2, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, made $10 million. And people were remarking about how it, it made $10 million on a $250,000 budget. And, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any way she said is going to turn a profit. But who knows? It could, it could do well on Peacock. It'll be there probably early next year. I don't work for these companies. And just as a
1: watcher and a fan, I would assume that if they had done like a Netflix release or they had released it on one of the major streaming services... This is like a type of thing that you have everyone around, family time. Someone mentions like, hey, we should all watch She Said Tonight or watch it together. I just got to imagine, like, I would put, I would bet that it would have done well if it was released on streaming first or simultaneously, maybe as a more of like a Netflix show.
0: Right. Well, the theory is that if you release them simultaneously, it cannibalizes Box, right? Because if it's on streaming and in theaters at the same time, there's less incentive to see it in the theater yeah so you figure you give 45 days exclusive theatrical window anyone that really wants to see it is going to get a ticket and see it and then it'll have sort of the people that are somewhat interested in it will just see it in in their homes when it's on peacock
1: well maybe it should have just been released as, as as a streaming movie i guess you can never really tell like back to your point Spotlight and those movies had done well. It's a weird time for film right now. Like, for example, even the Oscar ones that are coming out, I told you I'd seen Tar, but there's a few other movies where I'll sit there and I'm like, should I just go to the theater and watch this right now? But then they're limited on how many screens they're showing it on, and part of me is like, eh, it's a little cold, it's raining, like, I'd
0: rather just turn on the TV and watch it here. Right, I mean, so, box office, even if you want to just talk about, like, Marvel only... Apples to apples box office seems to be a little bit down from pre pandemic. Even now, like Marvel had three movies come out this year. And I think what remains to be seen where black Panther Wakanda forever finishes, but right now it's at about 600 million worldwide. Thor love and thunder only did 760 million worldwide. And Dr. Strange two is a shade under a billion worldwide. So three movies. And their aggregate box office is probably going to be under Avengers Endgame, which obviously is the highest grossing movie of all time. So that's kind of an outlier. But at the same time, to have three movies that don't necessarily hit that number in the aggregate, you know, I wonder if that's viewed as as a success or not. And we can discuss this sort of more after the break. But, you know, the cost on these movies, these Marvel movies is so high that it's being reported that when you add in the marketing, Sort of the break even number that they have to hit on box office is between seven and 800 million. So it's crazy to think that you could have $2 billion in box office revenue and not make any profit on three movies.
1: It'll be interesting to see how Avatar does. Avatars will be going into the end of the year. This is one of the biggest sequels of all time. The first one at one point was, you know, one of the highest generating movies of all time. And I remember going to see it and being like visually like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. Story was okay. And I'm wondering like, is it just been too long since that and the times have changed? Like I'm curious to know if Avatar does well and maybe because everyone's more, they just want to see James Cameron. But if Avatar doesn't do well, then I, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how people rethink
0: box office
1: or maybe James Cameron just does something else.
0: Avatar 2 needs to be, I think its break-even is $2 billion. <laughs> Yeah. And the other thing is, is 3D still a draw? And are people going to be willing to pay extra for 3D the way they did for Avatar 1? We don't know. When was the last time you saw a 3D movie? I saw Captain America, First Avenger in 3D. That was the last time. Yeah, so it's, it's funny you say that, like,
1: Avatar 1 was the only 3D movie that I thought this was worth watching in 3D. And every movie since then I've seen in 3D, which maybe have been, like, three or four movies were just... I I hated the experience. So we will see, but I think it goes to the whole thing around what works on the box office. It's it's completely unclear. I mean, besides obviously Marvel movies. And uh, I do want to bring up what you shared with me earlier about what Quentin Tarantino said about Marvel movies and the- Marvelification of Hollywood. Yeah, and like movie stars are no longer, um, and I'll just read what he had basically said that like, Marvel doesn't create movie stars. Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, the movie star is the character that they're playing. It's it's Captain America, it's Thor. And I do think he's got a good point. And then Simu Lu, who's the um the actor from Shang-Chi, who's I think right now he's he's doing great. He's he's a favorite amongst like Marvel characters. He came out and it was basically saying that, quote, if only gatekeepers to movie stardom came from Tarantino and Scorsese, I would never had the opportunity to lead a four hundred million plus movie. I'm in awe of their filmmaking genius; they are transcendent tours, but they don't get to point their nose at me or anyone. I look. I think it's one of those things where Quentin Tarantino makes great movies. Everyone goes and sees his movies. They are with movie stars in those movies, and I would agree that the movies that Marvel makes, while fantastic, I would agree. Like, I don't go, I go to see the character, and I don't necessarily follow those actors into other movies, and it hasn't really been proof that those actors do well outside of Marvel when they've debuted in Marvel. But I think just interesting about the commentary about Hollywood right now and, you know, what is a movie star.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I don't actually think Quentin Tarantino and Simu Lu are disagreeing as yeah. much as, one, Simulu's defense of Marvel and the fact that they have more diverse representation in their casting than has traditionally been applied to Hollywood, which I think is you know sort of well documented, isn't wrong. but that doesn't mean that Quentin Tarantino's wrong either, right? So I think they're on they're kind of like not in consistent positions. Simulu is right in that Marvel is especially of late increasing diversity and it's casting and Twinton Tarantino's right. And that Marvel is really more about building the profile of its characters and its intellectual property than the actors who play them for a series of movies and then get priced out or, or whatever. So I think they're both kind of onto something here and sure. I mean, if you think about it and we haven't done the analysis, I'm sure it'd be interesting if, One of our fans or one of our listeners wants to dig into this. I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of anyone that wasn't a star prior to being in a Marvel movie that became a star subsequent to being in a Marvel. I don't know that Marvel has launched anyone, even though people have been in high budget, well-performing Marvel movies. I think if they were already established before being in the MCU, then they continue to be a star. I don't think it hurts anyone's career, but I'm thinking like Robert Downey Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, Sam Jackson, like people that were established stars before they became part of the MCU are still stars. But anyone that they are sort of discovering or, or sort of, I guess you could say Chris Pratt. That's a good maybe, one. But he was he wasn't an action star until Marvel. I think that
1: might be the only one who is like, well, because Guardians really kicked him off as a movie star and then he did Jurassic World. Right. The second one wasn't great. But um, yeah, I would I would potentially put Batista Dave Batista could be could be seen as like maybe like a you know a a lower level movie star that Guardians of the Galaxy kicked off and he's and he's been able to do other stuff um but not in like a Tom we're not talking like in a Tom Cruise type way
0: right not in a Tom Cruise type way and a lot of people haven't necessarily been able to replicate their success outside of the MCU like Hemsworth Chris Evans um Tom Holland so they're you know it. It's a mixed bag, but I think I think both sides of this, even if you can call them sides, are, have merit to them. Yeah. I don't think they're really disagreeing.
1: I agree. Well, and I, I think it goes into what we'll talk about next. You know, we're talking about Marvel box office movies, but what is the future of Marvel? What's the future of Disney? And how is our man Bob Iger potentially going to change the trajectory of this company? So let's take a break and then we'll get back and talk about Bob Iger. OK, Paul, one of the biggest news, not only just in Hollywood and entertainment, but I think in the U.S. is like as far as like big leaders, business leaders comes in. Bob Chafek was fired uh, or did he step down or was he fired?
0: I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other. He we talked about this actually in the past. He had been dealt a rough hand as far as like taking over Disney during the pandemic, pandemic. Like right at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Iger stepped down, but stayed on in a lesser role. Bob Chapek became CEO, but Iger was there sort of in the background as chairman for another 11 months. And then Bob Chapek has sort of been running the company for better or worse through a very challenging time, had some missteps politically and with talent. And then it was reported last week that he stepped down. So I don't know if he was fired, but in June, he did get a three year contract extension. So the fact that Five months later, he's no longer there. Leads me to believe that maybe he wasn't voluntarily leaving. Right. And and Disney in general, look, the entire
1: stock market has been tough. It's been tough times.
0: Yeah, actually, I have I have the numbers here. So let's just go year to date here. So Disney's down 48%. So is Google. Amazon's down 47%. Viacom's down 38%. Comcast is down 31%. Warner Brothers Discovery's down 55%. And uh, Netflix is down 57% and Meta is down 67%. So it's been industry-wide, sort of like tech, media, entertainment, all of those companies have been struggling over the past year, stock-wise at least. And I think it's also, in this case, while Disney
1: Plus from a subscriber growth point of view has done well, costs are going up pretty, pretty high and revenues have obviously suffered recently. And so that has obviously caused a lot of issues for the stock price, but one of the things i read about was that it's the style of the way they operate disney is a very like culturally is invested in hollywood and media and like deals with like the creatives and deals with like the movie stars and obviously when, when iger was there he was able to acquire marvel lucas films pixar all that are like super heavy from a creator standpoint but also like heavy hitters from a creative standpoint but also from like these darlings in hollywood And I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about how Bob Iger understands how Hollywood and entertainment works and respects that whole angle of creativity and like dealing with the talent, quote unquote, versus a Bob Chapek who might have a different approach to Hollywood as he's from the Midwest and deals in a more, uh, I guess, a quantitative manner versus, hey, I'm dealing with like Hollywood elites. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens in the next year or so. I mean, the deal with Iger is it's a two-year deal. So it's not like he's there forever.
0: It's a two year deal. He's supposed to find his own successor, but you know, as I'm reading, and I, I think Disney would probably be wise to keep him as long as he wants to be there. Yeah, for sure. Right. I think rumors are that he was considering running another entertainment company, and that's why they swooped in to get him last week. And you know, a lot of what you said is 100 percent right. Is it's fact the fact is as a CEO, yes, you're making a lot of decisions, but you're also an ambassador for the company. And sometimes it's about like you can say no in a way that makes people feel respected and good. And you can say no in a way that people find to be insulting and condescending. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, projecting or anything, but I think, and, and I've had a couple limited sort of interactions with Bob Iger, not one on one, but in either a small setting. There were a couple of times where he spoke to Marvel as a company or to all the Disney lawyers. And there was one time where I was at Marvel and there were, I was with maybe 15 other people and I had just happened to meet him right before the acquisition and uh, or, or during the acquisition while it was after it was announced before it closed. And he is smooth, man. He is really <laughs> smooth and and very sort of like charming and diplomatic. And so like he, you know, he knows what to say, when to say it. And, you know, I don't think there's anyone out there that's going to say anything bad about Bob Iger because of how he carries himself and how he treats people. And just, you know, looking at the, his track record, when he became CEO, of, he's at, he was at Disney for 40 years. You know, if you add his time at ABC, Cap Cities, and then through Disney, he was CEO for 15 years. When he became CEO, it was a $50 billion company. When he left, it was a $250 billion company. So he... Oversaw an incredible era of growth, adding Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, um, maker studios, Fox. So he had a lot of properties, had a lot of intellectual property, but I don't know that every deal was perfect. And and the Fox deal was really tough, right? $70 billion at the height of the market. And you know, when the TV businesses is, is changing. And it was his decision to sort of go into streaming, although everybody realizes that you have to, if you're Disney, you have to have a streaming product. But streaming, as we've discussed ad nauseum, isn't profitable, or at least isn't right now. I know also there's articles out there that are saying that some of the projects that were expected to be solely for Disney Plus were actually distributed on other Disney properties in order to spread their cost out and make the Disney Plus numbers look a little bit better. Yeah. It's a challenging environment. As we said at the, earlier in this segment, all of Disney's competitors in the tech and media space are down significantly this year. During the pandemic, the parks weren't able to be open, so that was a huge hit to revenue, but since they've reopened, prices have gone up a lot. That's kind of rubbed fans the wrong way, but you know, in the fairness, it is a business there allowed you know, supply demand sort of thing. I don't think that Bob Iger, I think if he were in charge the entire past two years, I think it's tough to say that Disney's stock would have gone up or, you know, it probably would have gone down just like the industry has gone down. But certain relations, you know, the thing with Scarlett and, and other things probably wouldn't have happened because he was steeped in the culture and he sort of knew how to deal with people in a, in a more diplomatic way. But it's a really challenging thing to run a company of this size. And, you know, I think a lot of people, employees at Disney were shocked by the announcement, but they're thrilled that he's going to be back, even if it is just for two years, because he was a great leader. And I think they expect him to continue to lead.
1: Yeah. And I think he's just generally like a fan favorite. You talk to anyone on both sides of no matter where they stand, people love Bob Iger. I think one of I saw a tweet that someone was like, well, Sucks that Bob Iger is going back to Disney because now he won't be running for president. And I've, I've I've had a few people joke about that, that if Bob Iger actually did run for president and wanted to go into politics, he'd have a he'd have a large fan base. But he's back at Disney and uh, I'm generally excited to see what he does. And I actually hope that it'll add some new chapters to his book, which I love as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly will. I just I'm not betting against Bob Iger, but I just don't think that him being there dramatically changes the, the landscape that they're in. Totally. Which totally. is a very challenging one, right? Like costs are high. The economy is in a tough spot. Can people, I mean, they just increase the price of all their streaming products like right. four bucks, right? right? And they have an right. ad tier now. But, you know, if you're struggling to make ends meet as a family and then the streaming product gets more expensive, it's still probably a good deal given the amount of content, but, you know, who knows? And then you want to take your family to one of the parks and that's like, you know, a day per person or whatever it ends up being, if you add the food and the parking and everything. It's just a tough thing, right? To squeeze more dollars out of people that don't have the money. And and I think that's a good point. I think the point is that Bob Iger
1: coming in doesn't immediately, the stock popped just slightly, but he still has all these same problems that were there, you know, COVID and onwards. And Everyone's having those problems. Um, and the streaming battles are tough. We were just talking about the way people even watch movies now is changed. But we'll see. I mean, look, the guy did some pretty cool stuff.
0: It is interesting that wh- right when Chapek took over, he restructured the company right. and made distribution sort of the, head of the head of distribution. Basically had approval over all creative decisions. That's a guy named Kareem Daniel. And he's also leaving the company too. And Bob Iger said, you know, we're going to go back to putting the focus on the storytelling and the content creation, not necessarily the distribution, but at the end of the day, I mean, you have to watch your cost, right? Cause when revenue starts yeah, to hit yeah, a ceiling, yeah. the only way to derive profit is to watch the cost and yeah. streaming takes a while, a lot of investment to bear fruit, but you know, they have 200 million subs now. So, you know, they'll be able to sort of spread that cost among a lot more households for the content they're creating, but they need more hits. And that's not entirely bob's sort of call but he had a lot of them while he was there and maybe he'll come up with some very strategic metaverse play or something that you know maybe merge genies into disney or something i don't know that'd be very interesting
1: (laughs) yeah who knows
0: man i mean the guy's probably got a couple things up his sleeve
1: he's he's had some time to think about it it'll be interesting to just follow along watch and, and keep everyone up to date but yeah man i'm excited about it and let's see what happens and we'll cover it in the
0: future can't wait can't wait to see what happens.
1: All right, folks. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope that you are having a great holiday season. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler gonzalez and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week.
0: Thanks, everyone.